This episode features dramatizations and discussions of sexual violence, reproductive rape, violence against minors, gore, and self-harm. Listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. Please note, the story you're about to hear is not a direct retelling of any single myth about Nephilim. Today's episode combines elements from a number of legends and stories about these ancient giants for dramatic effect. If you or someone you love is struggling with suicidal thoughts or the impulse to self-harm, please seek help. Whether it's a therapist, a loved one, or your country's suicide hotline, these monsters are no myth. You shouldn't have to face them alone. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to ParCast's Mythical Monsters, the storytelling podcast where we encounter dangerous beasts and supernatural forces from myth and legend. Today's episode on the Nephilim is the third in our exploration of Abrahamic legend. Last week, we discussed Beelzebub. The so-called Lord of the Flies began as a pagan god invoked by magicians to heal the sick. Now he's known as Hell's most prominent demon prince and Satan's right-hand man. Don't forget to catch up on this tale of ancient demonology and early Christian exorcism if you haven't already. Today we'll meet the Nephilim, a half-human, half-angel race of giants mentioned in both the book of Genesis and the non-canonical book of Enoch. In the modern day, you're more likely to see the word Nephilim tied to urban fantasy, supernatural romance novels, and even video games. But their conception is tied to society's desire to hide and demonize victims of sexual violence. As always, you can find Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals on Spotify. The Nephilim appear in far more religious texts than the two biblical monsters we studied previously, but are nevertheless shrouded in mystery and debate. Their first biblical mention comes in the book of Genesis, which chronicles the earliest days of creation. After Adam and Eve leave the Garden of Eden, it describes a period when human beings began to increase in number on the earth. It goes on to state, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went into the daughters of humans who bore children to them. These were the heroes that were of old warriors of renown. This passage suggests that the Nephilim were the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men. Exactly who each of those groups refers to has been the subject of debate, but the dominant reading is that the sons of God are angels. The Nephilim, therefore, are the offspring of angels who mated with human women. The description of Nephilim as the heroes of old warriors of renown has been interpreted as a reference to stories of ancient heroes such as Gilgamesh and Hercules. In a sense, the author of Genesis is using the Nephilim to explain popular pagan mythologies, folding them into their own story by linking them directly to the Hebrew God rather than denying them outright. 
But for a more complete understanding of who and what the Nephilim are, we must turn to an ancient religious text that lies outside of biblical canon, one shrouded in as much mystery as the Nephilim themselves. The Book of Enoch dates from between 300 and 100 BCE. It's one of many ancient texts known as Biblical Apocrypha, books that relate to but are not officially considered part of the Hebrew or Christian canons. Tradition states that it was written by Enoch, an ancestor of Noah. Its early chapters offer an alternate telling of Genesis, focusing on a group of angels known as the Watchers. Like much of Genesis, it's a dark, violent, and often troubling tale. It establishes the Nephilim not as heroes, but cursed, evil beings, a form of corruption so vile that they would lead God to consider the unthinkable, destroying his own creation. Edom was born on a night when thunder shook the ground and lightning brought fire from the heavens to the earth. His mother Istar's cries matched the thunder's ferocity as she begged and pleaded for him to find his way into the world. He was born upside down. When his legs finally emerged, they were nearly as large as a lemon tree trunk. Istar had screamed along with her son before falling into a deep sleep. A month would pass before she awoke. Even then, she would never be the same as before. Just as Edom would never be the same as his peers. From his earliest days, his incredible height made him a pariah. The villagers warned their children to steer clear of him, but instead they hounded him. From his earliest days, he was followed by jeers of contempt whenever he left home. Edom's father, Haman, told him to be patient with the villagers. He said that their cruelty was born of ignorance and fear. Edom was different. He had to be better. Edom did his best, but sometimes he would feel his heart fill with anger. His fists would clench, his brow would furrow. At times like this, the only thing that could calm him was his mother's voice. Edom was too large for his mother's lap, but she would stroke his hair and sing to him. She told him that he was special, that he had to be the bigger boy in spirit, just as he was in body. But though she smiled at him, Edom saw the pain in her eyes and the tremor in her voice. They'd always been there whenever she looked at him, and this broke Edom's heart more than cruel words ever could. Edom once asked his father why Istar was so sad. Haman said that something had happened to Istar when Edom was born. The pelting rain of that night had reached into her soul, coloring it for the rest of time. For a while, this was enough of an explanation. But as Edom grew, he continued to notice how his mother's bottom lip quivered almost constantly, tears gathering at her eyes whenever they were in the same room. 
When Edom was seven, he decided to ask Ishtar what was wrong. He could no longer deny that there was something about him that bothered her, just as he could not hide the fact that he barely fit in their house. Ishtar smiled sadly and set down her sewing. Edom expected her to tell him to let the matter rest, but was surprised when she nodded. He was old enough now, she said, old enough to know the truth. Ishtar's eyes grew hazy with memory as she stared into the fire. Then, in a voice as sweet and smooth as honey, she began her story. Shemyaza was not of this world. His great wings were the color of dusk. At times, he had two heads, one staring behind while the other looked forward. Horns protruded from the spot where his ears should be. He was the strangest thing Istar had ever seen. But he was also beautiful, staggeringly, devastatingly, dangerously beautiful. He landed on the shore of the Jordan River one day. Istar had watched his descent, a single star plummeting from the heavens. A shower of glimmering light trailed after Shemyaza as his sandaled feet walked across the sand. The villagers were terrified by the sight of him. He was nearly twice as tall as the largest of them. But Istar had felt only wonder. She'd wanted to know more. Shemyaza smiled warmly down at Istar, pleased by the reverence she showed in his presence. He told her that he was an angel of the Lord, that all the stars in the sky were angels watching over mankind. But Shemyaza had come to do more than just watch. He had let his star fall so that he might observe and guide the children of men. And he was not alone. Soon, others would join him. As Istar looked to the heavens, she saw that his words were true. The stars were falling. They would fly over the heavens at night, crashing down onto the shore of the Jordan River, joining their leader. The watchers were each as strange and wonderful as Shemyaza. Some had more heads than his too. Others had a sea of eyes where a face should be. Their feathered and scaled wings glittered with all the colors of the earth, clouds, and sea. And true to Shemyaza's word, they had much to teach. Shemyaza knew the secrets of the heavens. He told Istar how to plant crops without depleting the soil. He taught Haman how to mold metal into sturdy weapons that could be used against the unrighteous. He showed them how to make jewelry from precious stones. Soon, these baubles hung from Istar's ears and wrists and arms. They sparkled in the light from Shemyaza's face. Istar had never received such gifts before. She felt special, anointed, and each look of Shemyaza's many-eyed gaze made her feel like something more than herself, chosen. Yahweh had smiled upon her. God trusted his people so much that he'd sent his true children to guide mankind. Or 
So she thought. One day, Shemyaza came to Istar, glowing with excitement for the news he had to bring. The angels were glad to help the humans, but they wanted something in return. They wished to participate in the most human of rituals. They wished to procreate, to beget children of their very own. Each watcher had selected a suitable mate, and Shemyaza wanted her. Istar's mind reeled. There was perhaps a world where she could want this. She'd enjoyed the angel's attention, but the way his many eyes watched her had become unsettling. There was no true curiosity here, no exchange of ideas, and she loved her husband. No, she did not want this. Shemyaza's faces darkened, his mouths curling into sneers. He reminded her of all the things he had taught her, more knowledge than any human had a right to learn. And she could not give him this one thing, the one human experience that he had been denied. Every one of Shemyaza's gifts was tallied against her. It would be temporary, he reminded her. Was nine months so long a time in exchange for all this knowledge? Istar prayed to Yahweh for guidance. She received no answer. She consulted the village priest. He told her that to deny Shemyaza would bring ruin on her village. No one wanted to court the wrath of an angel. In the end, she decided to give Shemyaza what he wanted. As soon as the thought entered her mind, she could already feel her womb swelling with child. Her stomach grew several sizes overnight. Sharp pains coursed through her body. Soon she could not stand or even sit. Breathing began to hurt as Edom's head pressed against her ribs. At first, Shemyaza watched with interest. But soon he grew bored with her cries of pain. He scoffed at her, at the effort it took for something so simple. She had done nothing but look at his final gift with contempt, he said. He'd been wrong to ever think she was special. Istar's heart hammered in her chest as the angel told her the time had come for him to leave. She realized she had been tricked. Shemyaza had never intended to raise the child. She confronted him, demanding to know how this could be God's wish. Shemyaza's twin mouths smiled. He'd never said he had come to Earth on God's orders. Shemyaza told Istar how the Watchers had grown bored of watching. Tired of observing humanity's pathetic, glacial steps forward, there was but one benefit to their mind-numbing job. The children of Eve were breathtaking. They had to have them. More than that, they wanted to leave their mark to create life as their father did. If beings such as humans were allowed to procreate, why have the angels, the sons of God, been denied the same right? The rebellious watchers swore an oath to one another. 
they would descend to earth and mate with the most beautiful women they could find. Whatever consequences the Heavenly Father decided to visit would be shared between them. They were united in their rebellion. But Yahweh had done nothing. The Creator had not raised a hand to protect His fragile little chosen ones, the sons and daughters of Adam. Even Shemyaza admitted he was surprised. Either way, it was time to go home. A pitying smile glinted on his lips as he spoke. I can still watch you from the stars, Istar. Do not cry. She was still heavy with child when she watched Shemyaza ascend to heaven. As the angel spread his wings, she felt Edom kick violently within her, sending blinding pain coursing through her body. When her vision returned, Shemyaza was a distant star rising into the sky. But the Lord was not as passive as Shemyaza believed. His star faltered suddenly, and a moment later it began to fall again. Istar watched in awe as it plummeted back to earth, crashing into the swirling depths of the Jordan, the celestial light sputtering out as it sank completely. Istar did not understand what she'd seen. Yet for a small instant, she felt lighter. She knew that she would never see Shemyaza again. But then she'd given birth, and Edom looked so much like him, so much like him. And though Istar had loved her son from the first moment she held him, she could not look into that strange, beautiful face without remembering. Her tail done, Istar cupped her tiny hand against Edom's massive cheek and said, It hurts less each day, my little star. Be patient with me. Edom cried silently next to his mother. He finally understood the rainstorm that lived within her. Everyone had turned against her. The Watchers, who'd been sworn to guard and protect humanity, had come to prey on them instead. The cowardly villagers had been eager to sacrifice her to help themselves. Even God had abandoned her. But none had betrayed her worse than Edom himself. Even before his birth, he had filled her body with pain. Now he served as a reminder of his cruel father. A terrible thirst for vengeance boiled in Edom's stomach. He could not forgive himself, but perhaps he could do what God should have. He could wipe all evidence of Shemyaza's presence from the earth. Every human innovation bought with cruelty and deceit. The villagers had always seen him as a fiend, and it turned out they were right. So let him meet their expectations, let him become a monster. God might have forgotten to punish the humans, but Edom would not, come hell or high water. Coming up, 
Edom fulfills his destiny. Now back to the story. Edom knew very little of his origins. He looked nothing like his father, and his mother seemed to carry a secret pain when she looked at him. So one day, he bent his massive frame into his mother's room and asked her to explain. Istar had not wanted to trouble her son, but Edom was growing quickly, and she knew she could not keep the truth from him for long. So she told him about his father. The Book of Enoch relates the story of Watchers, a group of angels who were charged by God with keeping watch over humanity. Eventually, many of the Watchers began to lust after human women and grew jealous of men's ability to procreate. The angel Shemyaza led a group of rebellious Watchers to make contact with humanity. They used their power and influence to mate with human women. These daughters of men soon gave birth to angels' children, a race of half-angel, half-human beings known as the Nephilim. The debates over the Nephilim's nature begin with the translations of the name itself. Nephilim has frequently been connected to the similar-sounding Hebrew word, nephaol, meaning to fall, suggesting fallen angels. But other scholars argue that it's more likely a form of an Aramaic cognate, which appears frequently in the Dead Sea Scrolls and is usually translated as giant. Whichever translation is correct, most scholars agree upon one fact. The Nephilim were huge, with some texts citing them at 300 L's, or arm's length, tall, approximately the height of a 100-floor skyscraper. In the Book of Numbers, Moses sends 12 spies to scout the Promised Land ahead of the Israelites. The spies are alarmed to discover that the land is already populated by the Nephilim and report to their leaders that, to ourselves we seemed like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Whenever giants appear in the Bible, such as in the case of Goliath, they're usually associated with violence and bloodthirstiness. This association carried to the Nephilim, who are described as being fierce warriors. Humans could not stand against their raw power in large numbers, and the Nephilim became known as great threats to the Israelites. But the God of the Old Testament had a radical solution for corruption involving a warning, a dove, and a very large boat. Edom's world had changed. For years, he'd taken his parents' advice, suffering the insults of the other children with little more than a grimace. But that was over now. His hands, as big as boulders and twice as heavy, curled into fists. He could not force the villagers to accept him, but he could make their lives difficult. For every insult, he smashed a hole into one of their homes and businesses. When the storms came, Edom ran through the streets, hitting the roof of every building like a rambunctious child. He was the true storm. If they could not love him, they would fear him. They were weak on their own, but with the angel's weapons, they stood more of a chance against him. 
They organized, and Edom began to find himself routed by their numbers when he tried to venture into town. One night, they surrounded his parents' home with torches. The flickering light reflected off their angry glares and the blades of their weapons. Edom wanted to throw himself into the mob, to tear them limb from limb. But he did not know what would happen to his parents then, so he agreed to leave and never return. There were tears in his mother's eyes as he went, and he was glad his head was so high above them that they could not see his own. He wandered in the desert for weeks. At night, he stared up at the expansive sky, glittering with distant stars, and felt small for the first time in his life. He was utterly alone. Then Joash found him. Joash was a Nephilim like Edom, a child of an angel father and human mother. And Joash had found 10 other Nephilim just like them, 10 other giants with long, strong limbs, all of whom had been driven out from their own villages. They'd found camaraderie and fellowship in Joash's camp, along with something else, a common thirst for revenge. Joash led the Nephilim on raids of the countryside, punishing humanity the way God had punished their fathers long ago. Edom found a new purpose in destruction. He could pull the head from a body in less than a second. A single kick from one of his strong legs could fell a tree. He felt true power surging through him. He was unstoppable. Joash and his men carved a swath through Canaan. They widowed women, killed children, sacked entire villages. Their names were said in panicked whispers and desperate cries, the 12 Nephilim. There were times when Edom wondered if he was doing the right thing, when the red haze of his anger receded and he felt the sunshine on his back. But the rage always returned at night as he gazed at the stars, at once so beautiful and so cruel. He blamed no one more than God. It was God who allowed his mother to suffer, who had neglected to punish the humans. Achan, one of the smaller Nephilim, always laughed at Edom's musings. The wiry giant said as he ripped the door from a house, did you ever consider that perhaps we are God's punishment? Perhaps even we're part of his plan. Joash growled. We follow no will but our own. Go to sleep, Achan. You're drunk. It was then that Edom felt the first touch of rain against his skin. The Nephilim reached out and caught another drop in his palm. It was thicker than the rains he'd grown up with. There was a viscous quality to the liquid that made it cling to the skin rather than race down to the ground. Edom called out to the rest of the Nephilim. They peered out from half-cratered doorways and studied the rain with him. None of them felt there was anything different about it. It slid down their bodies as it always had. 
they returned to their carousing, using barrels as cups and bedsheets as napkins. Edom looked again to the droplet in his hand. He watched it sizzle and smoke, burning a small circle in the skin of his palm. Akan toasted the deluge with a great wine barrel, holding it to the sky before bringing it to his lips. But as he took a drink of the wine and water, he began to choke. The Nephilim watched in awe as Akan coughed and sputtered. Soon he was hacking up dark blood and then large pieces of his own throat. The rainwater was burning right through his flesh. The other Nephilim scrambled for cover, but the tide was rising with unnatural speed. Joash called out to his brothers to join him on the roof of the tallest building, but a single drop of the burning rain landed on his tongue. Joash's eyes bulged. He unleashed a silent scream as his neck melted away from the inside out. Joash collapsed to the ground in pieces, sliding off the building's roof and into the dark water. The rain continued to fall and the flood continued to rise, consuming the wreckage the Nephilim had left behind. Edom waded through the dark, viscous water, fighting to keep as much of his body above the surface as possible. Any part of him that touched the liquid burned with an intense, searing heat. Huge patches of his skin were turning red and black before his eyes. He wanted to scream, to beg for the pain to end, but he knew that the moment he opened his mouth, he would swallow the deadly water. So he kept moving, fighting through the burning water until he reached the tallest building. He pulled himself onto the roof and collapsed onto his back. He lay there, exhausted. The rain continued to fall, but it felt like a light tingle compared to the intense fire he had just dragged himself out of. Eventually, he pushed himself to his feet and looked around for the other Nephilim. There was nothing left of his companions, the village or the surrounding desert. Everything had been consumed in the dark water, which was still rising. An enormous wave was barreling toward him. There was nowhere left to go. Edom closed his eyes and awaited his fate. Up next, Edom escapes the frying pan and enters the fire. Now, back to the story. Edom lashed out at his village, seeking to punish them for their inaction against his angel father. But they drove him away. He was lonely and full of self-hatred when he met Joash and the other Nephilim. Joash taught him how to fight, how to kill, and how to destroy. But not even their great size and strength could protect them from the strange flood beginning to swallow the land of Canaan. 
According to the Book of Enoch, the conception of the Nephilim coincides with the human race growing increasingly evil, in part due to the knowledge and weapons they acquire from rebelling angels. This overwhelming corruption, both men's actions and the Nephilim's existence, leads God to send a great flood to destroy nearly all of creation, leaving behind only Noah, his family, and the creatures on his ark. The passage suggests that the Nephilim were destroyed in the deluge, and yet they're reported as occupying Canaan in the time of Moses over 150 years later in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33. Some non-canonical texts explain their survival by saying that some Nephilim clung to the hull of Noah's ark through the flood, eventually sneaking away as the waters began to recede. But their punishment was not over yet. The few Nephilim who did survive the flood soon met an even darker fate, one that would forever seal their identity as corruptors of the human race. Edom floated through swirling darkness, how long he could not say. For a time he thought he must have been dead, that his body had dissolved like his Nephilim brethren, and that his spirit had been carried outside of time. But then the burning pain returned, crashing over him with the pounding waves. The waters had burned him, yes, but for some reason they had not destroyed him like the rest of Joash's crew. He did not know why he'd been spared. Perhaps it was a boon for his mother's long unanswered prayers. Perhaps the Creator had seen his fear as a sign of respect other Nephilim had not offered. Or perhaps God simply wasn't finished with him. Whatever the reason, he floated on through the endless sea, never quite able to break through to the surface. Time lost all meaning. Whether day or night, the sky above the surface remained a gloomy gray. He encountered no other living things in the dark, swirling water, not even fish. He had never been more alone. Edom shut his eyes for an eternity, picturing the drowning stars his mother had seen only days before his birth. The light of the watchers had flickered and died as they plunged into the Jordan. Slowly, the water began to change. Light penetrated the surface from high above. It became warm again, but not with the searing heat he'd known before. Edom felt his limbs stir with new life. When Edom finally crawled onto the shore, he stood and turned to face the water. The reflection that stared back at him was nothing like the body he'd known before. His skin had burned away completely, revealing leathery scales. His fingers had become talons, a long, curved tail extended to his feet. The water had not just burned away his old form, it had revealed his true self. As Edom stared at his reflection, a voice suddenly echoed all around him, at once soothing and thunderous. Edom, you have been spared. Many of your brothers are gone. Return to their natural home with their fathers in the depths. 
I have given you the life they would have begged me for. You need only serve your purpose. The voice paused, the weight of the moment like a storm about to break. Edom was overcome by the weight of all he had experienced. Did you want me to ask what that purpose is? The sky was quiet. Edom shook his head. He didn't care why he had been saved. He would do what he wanted, just as he always had. He waved his hand at the gathering storm and began to walk into the desert. He wandered for a long time, perhaps even longer than he had been in the water. Eventually, he reached a civilization, a new town, leaping up alongside the river. It looked no different than the villages he'd known before the flood. He could smell wood smoke and cooked meat long before he reached the city. Children's laughter reached his ears. He spotted them, a small group playing together on the riverbank. Edom braced for screams of horror as he approached. Instead, the children continued on with their game, racing past without ever acknowledging that he was there. Edom's blood boiled. He roared at the children. Don't you know who I am? But the children just went about the game as if nothing had happened, all except one. A little boy sitting away from the others looked up at Edom, eyes round and wide. Who are you? The boy asked. Edom crept closer to the child. The boy was covered in bruises and one eye was swollen and black. Edom asked if the boy could hear him. The child nodded. He'd heard every word. Edom looked back to the group. No one else had noticed anything. Edom was measured when he spoke next. I am Edom of Canaan, devourer of souls, destroyer of villages. I am wrath and rage undying. The boy scuffed his foot along the dry ground, apparently unimpressed. I feel that way sometimes. I get so angry I can barely move. Edom blinked. Well, hit something then. The boy blinked back as if the idea had never actually occurred to him before. He threw his whole weight at a nearby fence post. It toppled over. The boy looked up at Edom, squinting to discern his features as the giant's silhouette blocked out the sun. What's next? He asked. Edom smiled, finally feeling like himself. He rumbled, do it again. There are two endings to the Nephilim story. The first has them washed away in the great flood, the stragglers being murdered by heroic Israelites as they conquer their new promised land. The other says a few particularly violent giants became demons, tempting the children of men toward sin and violence. But in both cases, they're scapegoats, symbols of the savage and violent nature that man is meant to overcome. But in the 18th and 19th centuries, some Christians found another purpose for the Nephilim. They became a way to prove that the events of the Bible were not mere allegory, but historical fact. In 1705, a group of massive fossils were unearthed near Claverock, New York. 
Cotton Mather, the Puritan preacher often referred to as the architect of the Salem witch trials, argued that these were the remains of Nephilim who perished in the Great Flood. We now know they were, in fact, the remains of a mastodon. In October 1869, Gideon Emmons and Henry Nichols discovered a 10-foot-tall, 3,000-pound petrified corpse of a giant man while digging a well on land belonging to a farmer named William Newell in Cardiff, New York. It was put on display as a popular tourist attraction known as the Cardiff Giant. But this wasn't a fossil. It was an out-and-out -out hoax. Newell's cousin, George Hull, had commissioned the massive giant to be carved out of a solid block of gypsum and buried it. He wasn't just out for money, either. Hull had gotten into an argument with a Methodist revivalist, and he later wrote that he spent the night after wondering about why people would believe those remarkable stories in the Bible about giants. Why did the Cardiff Giants visitors believe these remarkable stories? Andrew Dixon White, the first president of Cornell University, described his experience of viewing the Cardiff Giant at the height of its popularity. Lying in its grave with the subdued light from the roof of the tent falling upon it, and with the limbs contorted as if in a death struggle, it produced a most weird effect. An air of great solemnity pervaded the place. Visitors hardly spoke above a whisper. The Nephilim inspired a sense of awe, of ancient history, of simple and savage right and wrong. Their cruelty and eventual transformation into demons suggest that the sins of the father can be laid at the feet of his sons, and that violence begets violence. History doesn't like to grapple with sexual violence, and folklore even less so. But the Nephilim reinforce a subconscious cultural desire to justify that denial. The story suggests that the product of a rape is inherently evil, corrupted in its very nature. The Nephilim were so irredeemable, they had to be wiped from the earth. But we can never fully escape Nephilim. Even if their bodies have been wiped away in a cataclysmic flood, they manifest again as demons, tempting men to anger and vengeance. These celestial giants still capture our imaginations, both in our fascination and our guilt. Monsters beget monsters, and we feel better when we slay them, restoring the natural order. Yet they still whisper to us, reminding us how very small we really are. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythical Monsters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythical Monsters on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. 
Mythical Monsters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Richet, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Vanessa Richardson.